Matthew chapter 4. <clears throat> Start by telling you a little story. It comes from a commentary. One of the aboriginal tribes in the South Seas has a rite of passage from boyhood to manhood. It's called the walkabout. And a boy coming to puberty is sent into the jungle. Imagine this, mothers, for six weeks. And they send their, their boy into the jungle for the six weeks without food, without shelter, and without weapons. And during this time, he has to test all of his survival skills that he has learned during his childhood to see if he can actually survive those six weeks. But he has to be creative. Sometimes unexpected things come up, and you meet the unexpected, and how is he going to handle the unexpected? That's a final examination if I've ever heard one, isn't it? Can you imagine? But one mistake, and of course you're dead, right? An animal could kill you, plants can kill you, can fall off cliffs, there's a number of things that can kill us. But if that boy survives and walks out of the jungle after the six weeks, he returns to a celebration that honors him as a man, as a hunter, and as a warrior. Jesus kind of experienced something like this, but he wasn't in the wilderness for six weeks. He was there for 40 days. And the testing in the wilderness was kind of like Jesus' equivalent of a walkabout. However, there was one huge difference between Jesus and the boys that were sent into the jungle for six weeks. And the Bible mentions it. The big difference is that Jesus' walkabout was filled with the power of the Holy Spirit. He had the power of the Holy Spirit. So we come to Matthew chapter 4, and we see this is, of course, the context here immediately taking place after his baptism, which was there at the Jordan River, and he sent into the wilderness, which was near the Jordan River, apparently. So let's look at the setting of this temptation in the first two verses here. Look at uh, verse 1, Matthew 4, verse 1. Then Jesus was led up by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. And when he had fasted 40 days and 40 nights, afterward, he was hungry. So we see Jesus' ministry, his earthly ministry, is beginning in the desert. Not a very dramatic place, is it? Uh, apparently, this was the highlands of the Judean desert, which was west of the Jordan River and also the Dead Sea. You can see a picture there of the Judean wilderness. It's a pretty stark place. This was the place probably where David went as he was fleeing from King Saul. It's the place the Bible talks about in Matthew 24 and 25 during the tribulation that uh, the Jews are, and the Israelis are going to flee into this wilderness to get away from the Antichrist. This is the place where Jesus went. Now, why did he go there? Well, Jesus goes to the desert, as it says, to allow the devil to tempt him. This was a time of testing, if you will. God was using this as a time of testing, not to show, not, not, not to, God wasn't wondering, well, is, is Jesus my son really the Messiah? That, that's not the point. God the Father knew that Jesus was the Messiah, knew that he was the true king, and this is showing that he is the rightful Messiah. Well, Matthew gives some key insights to these two verses. Let me just point out three points, three key insights. Number one, 
we see here that Jesus is spirit-led. He's led by the Holy Spirit. And of course, we know, uh, based on Matthew chapter 1, that Jesus was conceived of the Holy Spirit, born in a virgin woman by the Holy Spirit. And the Spirit came upon him in chapter 3 by the Holy Spirit. And now we see the Spirit is leading Jesus into the desert. So the Holy Spirit had a vital ministry to play in Jesus' life, even during this time period. Matthew's showing us that the Spirit is no impersonal force. The Holy Spirit's a person. He is the personal agent who is going to be intimately involved in guiding Jesus every step of the way through his earthly life. And that's significant because this is the same Holy Spirit whom Jesus said would be our comforter, that he would send when he was gone, who would indwell us. The second key insight that's point, that we need to point out here is that the devil is a real adversary. He's a real adversary. And by the way, we shouldn't think of him as you know, a guy dressed in a red suit with a pitchfork and a, and a pointed tail with horns on the head. That's not the devil. By the way, although King Herod was the first human adversary of Jesus mentioned in the book of Matthew, the real enemy, if you will, the, 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 the impetus behind Herod and everything else that happens, to, bad things that so-called happen to Jesus, is the devil. Or as he's later going to be called, Satan. The devil and Satan are the same person. So who is the devil? Who is the devil? Well, he's not like some people think. He's not just a symbol of evil. He's not just an emblem of corruption. The devil is a real person. In fact, he is a fallen angel. The devil is an intelligent, powerful spirit being that is thoroughly evil and is directly involved in committing evil. I'll remind you, he's not omnipresent. Often we, we give the devil far too much credit, as, as if he's, he's the one who's constantly tempting us. In reality, he's probably not the one tempting you. It's probably, as we saw on Thursday night in our study on James, it's your own indwelling sin that's your worst enemy, and the demons use your indwelling sin against you. But the real enemy, uh, as the real enemy of God here, the devil leads a host of other powerful spiritual beings that are called demons, and they're the ones who are assisting him to try to thwart God's purposes. So in reality, when we're tempted, it's probably the demons who are using your indwelling sin against you. So the devil's a real adversary. But the third key insight we need to point out here is that Jesus is fully God, but he's also fully man, and he's both of those in one person. Now, I know if you take 100% plus 100%, you're supposed to get 200%, aren't you? And so mathematically, it doesn't make sense, but that's the truth of Scripture, <laughs> okay? This is one of those things you're never going to fully understand. How can someone be fully God and fully man and still only be one person? Well, the, that's what the Bible says about Jesus. And that's important to know here because we... You know, some, as we were even talking about Thursday night, did Jesus really get tempted? Was it a legitimate temptation? Because we know that God can't sin. And, of course, Jesus is fully God, so was it really a temptation? Well, of course God can't sin, but man can sin, right? And Jesus had full humanity. 
but because he was also fully God, he couldn't sin. So his humanity could sin, but of course his deity was keeping him from sinning. So, yes, in, in a way he couldn't sin. Does that make sense? That, that's a huge theological discussion, and I just kind of summed it up for you in one minute. But anyway, uh, no, he could not sin. His deity kept his humanity from sinning. So this is important to notice here, because the Bible mentions that, that Jesus, while being fully God, was also fully man. Did you notice what verse 2 said? After being 40 days and 40 nights in the wilderness, it says that he hungered. Jesus hungered. He, he feels the same things, goes through the same things that you and I do, because he is also human. By the way, God doesn't need anything. God doesn't feel hunger. God doesn't need air. God doesn't need to drink water. God doesn't need sleep. God doesn't need anyone to fellowship. God needs nothing. So the fact that he is hungering here is showing that Jesus is also human. Okay? That's an important thing to notice here. But of course, most of this passage talks about Satan's three temptations. So we're going to focus most of our attention on these three temptations. And what does it actually mean for Jesus? What's the point of these temptations. And the first temptation that we see here is that Jesus was tempted to distrust the providential care of his Father and to use his divine powers to serve himself. Look at, excuse me, look at verse 3 and 4. Look at verse 3 and 4. Now when the tempter, that's the devil or Satan, came to him, he said, if you are the Son of God, command that these stones become bread. But he answered and said, It is written, Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. So the temptation is, Satan's coming along here. He's trying to get Jesus to distrust the providential care of his father. His father's going to look after him. Jesus knows that. And if he can get him to distrust his providence, the providential care of his father, then he's going to use his, his powers, if you will, to turn stones into bread so that he'd have food. It's natural after being without food for 40 days to be hungry, right? He's hungry, as it says in verse 2. By the way, the nature of the temptations is really expressed in the tempter's first words. Did you notice the first words of the tempter there? It says, if you are the Son of God. By the way, that's, that's the same old tactic that Satan used in the Garden of Eden in Genesis chapter 3, didn't he? Satan tried to get Eve, deceived Eve, into doubting the word of God. And so, he's trying to get Jesus to distrust the providential care of the Father here. And so this key phrase, by the way, is repeated in the second temptation, and it's assumed even in the third temptation. It's reflecting the devil's overall intent, if you will, to, to manipulate Jesus, to deceive him. So what is Satan doing here? I mean, after all, he does not doubt Jesus' identity as the Son of God. Jesus, or I should say, Satan knows that Jesus is the Son of God. He knows the truth. He just doesn't like the truth. So he's not the one who's doubting Jesus' identity here, and he's not trying to get Jesus to doubt it. To, to, uh, or, or, I 
don't know if he's so much trying to get Jesus to doubt it, but I think he's trying to get Jesus to misuse his prerogatives as the Son of God. If you remember Philippians chapter 2, in Philippians chapter 2 it says that Jesus humbled himself. He became a man. He dwelt among us, right? He didn't use his prerogatives of deity amongst us when he was here. He never turned anything into food or, or something for him to eat when he needed it. He didn't, uh, he didn't use his powers to protect himself, necessarily. Well, not most of the time, anyway. He, he subtly plays off Jesus' identity here to, to trick him into going contrary to the Father's will. By the way, Jesus has it totally within his power to turn the stones into bread. He could have done that if he was willing to do that. We see Jesus doing something similar to that later on in the book of Matthew. Remember, Jesus turned the, the, the loaves of bread and the fish into to far more than what they were actually were when he fed 5,000 men plus women and children. He took, was it five loaves, two fish, if I remember correctly? Multiplied those to feed 5,000 men plus their wives and their children. So probably over 10,000 people were fed with five loaves of bread and two fish. So Jesus could obviously do something like that, but he chooses not to. So it's not God's will for him to acquire food through miraculous means here, apparently. So Jesus knows he's come to live a truly human life, one that goes through the normal means of acquiring food, and of course that wasn't the normal means of acquiring food, to turn stones into bread, so he doesn't do it. What is the Father's will for the Son, by the way? What is the Father's will? Well, Jesus responds to Satan here by actually quoting from a passage in the book of Deuteronomy. And in fact, he quotes from Deuteronomy chapter 8. And in chapter, Deuteronomy chapter 8, the context there is Moses is actually reminding Israel that God had led them 40 years in the desert to humble them and to test them. By the way, notice it was 40 years, which is not exactly the same, but there, there is a correspondence there between Jesus' 40 days in the wilderness and the Israel's 40 years in the wilderness. There's a testing going on there. So one of the tests was through hunger and God's provision of manna. You remember the manna would come every day, and they were only to gather enough manna for that day, and if they gathered too much, then it would go bad, right? Remember that? If they didn't gather enough, well, then that was their fault for not doing what God told them to do. And so God would bring this manna every day. He was providing this for them. And it was a test. And so the purpose of that test was to teach them, as Deuteronomy says, that, uh, that man does not live on bread alone, but on every word that comes from the mouth of God. So that's the context for Jesus' quotation. And since it is the Father's will for Jesus to be in the desert, because he's, the Spirit's the one who led him there, as a human, he's relying not on, on his own abilities here to create food, but what is he relying on? He's relying on the Father to supply his needs. Jesus isn't going to go contrary to the Father's will for this specific situation. And so what is Jesus doing? He's trusting what the Father revealed to be his will. 
Therefore, the first temptation here is really getting at the core of Jesus' personal trust in the Father. Is Jesus going to trust the Father or not? Is he going to trust him or not? That's the issue at stake here. Jesus maintains that the essence of life is trusting God's word. So let me ask you, how about you? Is that the, do you find that the essence of life, really? Trusting God and taking him at his word? Do you trust God's word? As Jesus did, and as you should. We all should trust God's word, but we know that's hard to do at times, isn't it? Especially when you're going through a difficult time. You may not have been fasting in the wilderness for 40 days. You may not be as hungry as Jesus was, but sometimes we go through... It, it, it's hard. You know, when, when good times are going on in our life, right? It, 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 it's easier to trust God, but when the difficult times come, do we trust God during those times? That's when the rubber meets the road. So the first temptation was Jesus was tempted to, dis, to distrust the providential care of his father and and Satan was trying to get him to use his divine powers to serve himself, but Jesus didn't do that. He quoted the book of Deuteronomy. The second temptation is Jesus was tempted to presume on the Father's care by putting him to the test. I've given you a picture here. There's a replica of, of the temple. Uh, yes, that is a replica. It's a pretty good replica, isn't it? And the reason I've given that to you because we see here in verses 5 through 7 that Satan actually takes Jesus to Jerusalem, to the temple. Let's read what the Bible says. Verse 5, it says, Then the devil took him up into the holy city, set him on the pinnacle of the temple, and said to him, If you are the Son of God, throw yourself down. For it is written, He shall give his angels charge over you. And in their hands they shall bear you up, lest you dash your foot against a stone. Jesus said to him, and it is written again, you shall not tempt the Lord your God. So here we see the devil took Jesus to Jerusalem, the, the holy city, sets him on the highest point of the temple. By the way, the pinnacle, <clears throat> my understanding, referred to the southeast corner of the temple. Southeast corner of the temple was was the, the, the tallest part there. Uh, it was said to be about uh, 400 feet or 130 meters above the Kindred Valley. And so we see Jesus approaching Jesus with, again with the words, If you are the Son of God, cast yourself off. <laughs> of course, if Jesus actually did that, he would have died if, unless he was protected somehow. If you... If you fell 130 meters off that wall there into the valley, you'd probably die. Interestingly enough, Satan knows Scripture too, by the way, because Satan actually quotes from Psalm 91. He couldn't defeat Jesus with the first temptation, so, so he gets a bit wise here. And he, in, in verse, five, or, sorry, verse 6, he actually quotes from Psalm 91 when he says, he shall, give you, he shall give his angels charge over you. So may I remind you that Satan knows Scripture probably better than you do. 
course, he loves to take Scripture and twist it. That's what, he, that's what he's doing here. Now, does Jesus have the ability to do what the devil tempts him to do? Does he actually have this ability? I mean, because the devil urged Jesus to throw himself down from this very high place so that, so that God the Father would send his angels to rescue him. So does Jesus have the ability to actually do what the devil tempts him to do? Well, of course he does. <laughs> Jesus has the ability to call angels to protect him. And in fact, just prior to Jesus' arrest and his crucifixion, Jesus himself actually states here in the book of Matthew, and in fact in chapter 26, Jesus says that he has the ability to call 12 legions of angels. Jesus could have done that. And the angels could have protected him. But Jesus didn't do that. And so the devil's quotation is, is literally a blatant misuse of Scripture, and he's trying to manipulate Jesus into sinning. The original, by the way, the original Old Testament context in uh, Psalm 91 does not imply that God's going to send protection for every harmful situation. Okay, please don't take Psalm 91 that, in that light. Okay, God's not saying that, you know, he's not pre- God's not preaching a health, wealth, and prosperity gospel in Psalm 91. That if you become a Christian, he's going to protect you through every single harm that happens in your life. That's not what Psalm 91 saying. Those of you who are Christians know that bad things happen to good people. It's true. So fortunately, Jesus sees the devil's scheme here, and he actually replies, not from chapter 8, but from Deuteronomy chapter 6, verse 13, when he says, you shall not put your Lord, the Lord your God to the test. Now what's going on here? Jesus is being challenged here to confirm this relationship that was mentioned back in chapter 3. Remember, at Jesus' baptism, God the Father speaks from heaven, and he says, this is my beloved Son, in whom I am well pleased. And so Satan is trying to get Jesus and other people, by the way, to, he's always trying to do this, to get us to doubt God's word. Satan's questioning the Father's love for his Son, and Satan's basically saying to God the Father, well, prove your love by sending help. <laughs> Ooh, he's just that, that little nasty instigator behind the scene here. But Jesus doesn't need to get the Father's to prove to him that they have this father-son relationship going on. He doesn't need that. God the Father said it once, and that's, that's good enough for Jesus. The Father declared the relationship at the baptism, therefore the Son no, need, needs no further confirmation. Do you see the essence of biblical faith here? I see the essence of biblical faith. Biblical faith, by the way, is not a blind leap into the dark. Hey, you read some books from Christian bookstores, they, they love talking about this. You know, it's, biblical faith is when you make some blind leap into the dark, you know, where there's, there's no object of your faith. No, faith has an object, and the, and the object of your faith must be God and his promises and his word. Biblical faith is taking God at his word and then being obedient to it without needing any more confirmation. Some people are like, like Gideon. <laughs> you know, God says something, but we want to be like Gideon, and we want to put out the fleece, right? 
and we say, you know, we just we, we pray and ask God, well, you know, you know, put some water on the fleece. God puts water on the fleece, right? And then and then Gideon wasn't happy with that, and you know, oh, well, maybe that was a fluke, right? So Gideon puts the fleece out the next night and says, okay, God, keep it dry, but make all the ground around wet. Aren't we like that? We've we, we got to have confirmation. You know, God says something in the Bible. There's a promise in the Bible. There's some statement in the Bible, a command or something. And, and we, we seem to want further confirmation that God actually meant what he said. Praise God, Jesus wasn't that way. He had biblical faith. He believed what God said. Well, what about us? Does God expect us to take risk? Does God expect us to take risk? What do you think? Some people think, you know, they can just, they can just go through life and they see God, you know, they'll take Psalm 91, for example, and think, well, God's going to protect me from harm. That's what Psalm 91 talks about, right? So I can take all these kind of risks. I can do silly, crazy stunts throughout my life and God's going to protect me. Well, one commentator put it this way. Quote, God expects us to take risk, any risk necessary, in order to obey his will. When we risk our prestige, our money, our lives, our families, or anything else to fulfill the Lord's calling, we can rest confidently in his divine provision for all that we need. But, look, look at the but, <laughs> but when we take risk simply to fulfill our own ambitions... Or to put God to the test, he gives no promise on which we can rest. End quote. Do you see the difference there? God will protect you when you do his will. But if you go and do something silly, like jump out in front of a train, or in front of an 18-wheel truck, and say, God's going to protect me, you're being foolish, you're being presumptuous. That's unnecessary risk. Don't expect God to protect you in those situations. Well, the third temptation is found in verses 8 and 9. We see that Jesus was tempted to renounce the way of his father and to substitute that way for the way of Satan. And that, in, in, in essence, Satan is, is asking for worship here. Let's see what happens starting in verse 8. Again, the devil took him up on an exceedingly high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their glory. And he said to him, All these things I will give you if you will fall down and worship me. Then Jesus said to him, Away with you, Satan. For it is written, You shall worship the Lord your God, and him only you shall serve. So Jesus is he's tempted here by Satan to, to worship him. By the way, this... What a cruel enticement this was. Think about this for a moment. You say, why is this a cruel enticement? Well, those kingdoms that Satan's offering to Jesus is the very reason Jesus laid aside his glory in heaven. His ultimate purpose was to gather the nations into the kingdom of heaven or the kingdom of God. And so before he sits on his royal throne, Jesus had a different route that the Father was taking him. The route didn't lead directly to the throne. The, the, the throne, let me put it this way, the cross was before the throne. The Father's will was for Jesus to go to the cross before he got the throne. 
And so the devil is offering a shortcut here. The devil's, the devil's saying to Jesus, take the shortcut, go around the cross so you can have your throne. Jesus can bypass the suffering of the cross. But taking that shortcut required a condition here. Do you see the condition? What does Jesus have to get up, give up to receive the bypass or the, the shortcut? He had to give up the will of his father to worship the devil. Oh, that's tricky, isn't it? Avoid the cross, but you just have to worship Satan. <laughs> well, how does Jesus handle this temptation? Well, the first thing he does is he exerts his rightful authority over Satan, and he issues Satan a command. Did you notice the command in verse 10? He says, away with you, Satan. Away with you, Satan. <laughs> so he's exerting his authority over Satan, who is a created being. Jesus created him originally as Lucifer. Lucifer sinned in heaven. God cast him out of heaven and became Satan. So Jesus is exerting his rightful authority over this created being and tells him to go away, essentially. And then he, again, quotes from the book of Deuteronomy. Now, there's three important points I want to make here. Number one, Satan does have a significant influence over people. However, his influence is limited. Okay? Please understand, Satan does have an influence over you and the people of this earth, but that influence is limited. He is not all-powerful. He is not omnipresent. He can't do whatever he wants. God has him on a leash, so to speak, and he only goes as far as God lets him. Number two, temptations involve the twisting of reality, just as Satan is doing here to Jesus. He takes scripture, he takes reality, he twists it, and so what's the antidote? Well, the antidote comes from the truth of Scripture. And number three, God alone is worthy of worship. Satan tries to get Jesus to worship him, but the truth is there's only one God, and he, is, he alone is worthy of worship. And so Jesus does the right thing, of course. He doesn't take the shortcut. He doesn't take the bypass. He realizes the Father's will for his life is to go to the cross, to suffer, and to die and that's what he does. Well, I want us to think a little bit more about the bigger picture here, okay? There's three purposes for Jesus' victory over Satan. Three purposes for Jesus' victory over Satan. Lest, lest you start focusing on the individual trees and, and miss the big picture, let's kind of just step back for a moment, okay? Step back for a moment. Try to get the bigger picture here. That's what I want to do as we think about the three purposes for Jesus' victory over Satan. So Jesus' confrontation with the devil here at the beginning of his public ministry, I don't think is a coincidence. I think there's, there's a sp several reasons why this is taking place at the beginning of his public ministry. And Matthew indicates three significant purposes that are accomplished here through Jesus' victorious clash with the devil. Number one, number one the victorious encounter surpasses the experience of Adam. Jesus fulfilled what Adam failed to accomplish. And if you've read the book of Romans, you know that Jesus is called the second Adam, isn't he? He is the second Adam. Of course, the first Adam was the first created being. Did he accomplish the purpose of being perfect? Living a perfect life? No, he failed, didn't he? He fell and took all humanity with him. 
And so Jesus actually fulfilled what Adam failed to accomplish. The first Adam, of course, failed. And by the way, what conditions was he in? The Garden of Eden was perfect conditions, right? He had perfect conditions and still failed. By the way, that shows you that, that you're, we can't blame our environment. But the second Adam, who of course is Jesus, he succeeded in very bad conditions, didn't he? Death was the result of Adam's sin, but Jesus' suffering and temptation enabled him to bring life. So we see the contrast here between the first Adam and the second Adam. Hebrews chapter 2, verses 17 and 18 say this, Therefore he had to be made like his brothers in every respect, so that he might become a merciful and high priest in the service of God, to make propitiation for the sins of the people. For because he himself has suffered when tempted, he is able to help those who are being tempted. So we see, number one, that Jesus fulfilled what Adam failed to accomplish. Number two, the victorious encounter surpasses the experience of Moses in Israel. I don't think it's a coincidence that Jesus was in the wilderness for 40 days. It was meant to to line up with the 40 years that Israel was in the wilderness after they left Egypt and before they came to the Promised Land. So Matthew's prior allusions to Israel's history should lead us to correspond to Jesus' experience of these 40 days of fasting in the desert. There's this correlation between Israel's 40 years of testing in the desert. So both in type as well as direct fulfillment here, Jesus' early life paralleled the history of Israel. There's a parallel here. This point is going to be made um, all the stronger when we see that each of Jesus' replies to the devil is obviously coming from the book of Deuteronomy. Which, of course, who wrote the book of Deuteronomy? Moses wrote the book of Deuteronomy. Remember, Moses was the leader of Israel during those 40 years in the desert. Do you think it's a coincidence that Jesus is quoting from one of those books? No, of course not. Of course not. But most important here, Jesus fulfills the nation of Israel's experience. Unlike Israel, Jesus was fully obedient to the Spirit's leading. Was Israel fully obedient? Of course not. Not even close. But Jesus was. Jesus fully obeyed his Father's will. Number three. I like the way this commentator put it. Quote, The victorious encounter confirms Jesus' identity and mission as the unique Son of God. There are more important issues at stake here than simply recording Jesus' spiritual temptations. The allusions to the fall of Adam and the wanderings of Israel in the desert cry out for God's new beginning. The darkness of the chaos of sin looms over humanity, and Jesus is called upon as the, as the unique Son of God to rectify the previous failures. But the beginning of the end of darkness must come out of the weakness of the Incarnation, because the obedient Son becomes the prototype of victory over temptation for all who follow Him. End quote. Of course, we see that in Hebrews. The whole book of Hebrews is showing that Jesus is the best. Look what Hebrews says, chapter 4, 
since then we have a great high priest who passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold fast our confession. But we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. So what was the result of the temptation in the wilderness? Well, look at verse 11. Verse 11 gives us the result. Verse 11 says this, Then the devil left him, and behold, angels came and ministered to him. There's two points in verse 11 I want to point out to you. Number one, we see, first of all, the first result is the devil left Jesus. Jesus knew he had to stay fixed on the Father's will no matter what happened. And, of course, that's what he did. Resisting the devil's attack through standing firm on the truth of God is going to cause Satan to flee every time. And that's what he did. And, of course, we see that. That's the same for us, by the way. James chapter 4, verse 7 says, Submit yourselves to God, resist the devil, and he will do what? He will flee from you. By the way, notice what comes first in James 4. Submit yourselves to God. If you're not submitted to God, don't try to resist him. If you're not submitted to God, there's no point in trying to resist him because he's not going to flee. Submission to God comes first. Then you resist the devil and he will flee from you. Not because you're powerful, but because God is powerful. So we see the devil left Jesus. But number two, this is interesting, the angels ministered to Jesus. Verse 11 is a comforting conclusion here in the midst of this temptation. But it's also giving us insight to the bigger picture here behind Jesus' conflict with Satan. Lest you're missing the bigger picture, let me just make a few comments. This comment here about the angels ministering to Jesus is indicating the cosmic significance of the scene that has just been played out before our eyes. The Son of God has begun to invade the kingdom of Satan. Or his domain, if you will. Actually, it's God's kingdom. And Satan is, is, is playing havoc in it at the moment. And so this initial victory was good, but the ultimate victory over all evil is yet to come. But the process is being started. Jesus is invading the domain of Satan. The, the, the start of the end is, is starting right here as Jesus begins his earthly ministry. And so in the end, we're going to see the establishment of God's reign through all the universe. And this is the start. Well, let me just, let's just think for a few moments about our war. Because we see Jesus was obviously tempted, even though he is God. He's fully God and fully man in one person. He, he went through war with Satan, but you know what? The reality is, you and I are going through a war too. There is direct application for our lives when we are tempted and when we must stand against Satan's attacks. So let's, let's just think about this for a moment, okay? First of all, we face the same war that Jesus faced. We face the same war. The Apostle Paul wrote 
about this war in his letter to the Ephesians. Here's what he said in Ephesians 6. He said, For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. My friends, notice, notice your enemy is not your next door neighbor. The enemy is not your workmate. The enemy is not some obnoxious family member. It's not your mother-in-law, your father-in-law. It's not a niece or a nephew or some other person that is attacking you in some way. The Bible says it's not flesh and blood. Your, your enemy is spiritual forces. Satan is part of those spiritual forces. And of course the demons, their various ranks are mentioned here. These cosmic powers in the present darkness are your enemies. And so you and I face this enemy. And of course these, these enemies are going to use, as James talks about, your indwelling sin against you. So you face the same spiritual war. The difference was Jesus didn't have indwelling sin. But nevertheless, we have a war to face. Every day you wake up, you have a war. You need to be aware of that. And by the way, this war is so fierce that the Apostle Paul continues to talk about this in Ephesians 6. And he says that when you, every morning you get up, you need to arm yourself for that war. You need to take God's armor on yourself. <laughs> look, what, look what Paul says in Ephesians 6, verse 14. It's on the screen. It says, Stand therefore, having fastened on the belt of truth, and having put on the breastplate of righteousness, and as shoes for your feet, having put on the readiness given by the gospel of peace. In all circumstances, take up the shield of faith, which, with which you can extinguish all the flaming darts of the evil one, and take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit, which is the word of God. By the way, every, every one of those pieces of armor has something to do with the gospel. The gospel is a believer's protection against Satan and his attacks. Which is why, which is why authors have often said, preach the gospel to yourself every day. Your protection is the gospel. Are you preaching the gospel to yourself every day? There's various ways you can do that. Okay, You can sing hymns. Sing hymns that talk about the person and the work of Christ. That is one way of preaching the gospel to yourself. You can memorize scripture, quote scripture to yourself. You can, uh, you can, you can get good books like the Gospel Primer, or Primer, however you want to say it. There's, there's, there's all sorts of ways of preaching the gospel to yourself every day. That is your protection. And if you go out into the world without that protection, you're going, you're going to suffer. You're going to get hit, and it's going to hurt. We face the same war. So my friend, we're, yes, we face the same war every day, so what do you do? Like any good soldier, get ready. Get ready. And how do you get ready? By fully equipping yourself for the struggle. Don't be a fool by going out into battle without the armor. Number two, we have the same choice. We have the same choice. Okay? Just as Jesus did, we have the choice that we can either trust God 
or we can stick to the we can stick to the path God has set before us and obey his will or we can distrust God and just do our own thing. That's your choice. Really what it comes down to two is worship then, doesn't it? Are you going to worship yourself or are you going to worship God? So which choice are you going to make? Will you go God's way, or will you follow the world, your indwelling sin, or the devil? Which is it? The choice is yours. We have the same choice. Number three, we can have the same victory. We can have the same victory. Yes, we're not God. But nevertheless, the same victory is ours. Look what 1 Corinthians 10.13 says. It's on the screen. No temptation has overtaken you that is not common to man. God is faithful, and he will not let you be tempted beyond your ability, but with the temptation he will also provide the way of escape that you may be able to endure it. Did you see there? You have the ability to escape. There is a way of escape. When the temptation comes your way, you don't have to sit there and say, oh, I have no choice, I have to do it. No. You have, you have the victory in your grasp. And when you might, you well, some of you might be saying, well, I agree, but what is that path of victory? Well, the temptation of Jesus actually points the way to victory for us. How did Jesus respond to Satan's temptations? Three times. Jesus said, it is written, it is written, it is written. In other words, he quoted scripture. By the way, how well would you do against Satan if your life, if your spiritual life depended on knowing the book of Deuteronomy? I stand convicted on that one because I don't know the book of Deuteronomy very well. Jesus knew the book of Deuteronomy and all the other books in the Old Testament. And he used the book of Deuteronomy, he quotes the book of Deuteronomy to defeat Satan. By the way, Paul told the Ephesians, remember in chapter 6 there, the only offensive weapon was what? The sword of the Spirit, which is what? The Word of God. That's the only offensive weapon. The first reason we can have victory is because you and I have the Bible. We have God's Word. By the way, we have all of God's Word Jesus only had the Old Testament. So we even have more. (laughs) And so if Jesus, who is your Lord and your Savior, needed to know the Scripture in order to resist Satan and win the victory over him, how much more do you and I need to know the Scripture? We must know the words of the Bible. You say, well, I've got a general idea of what the Bible says. Well, my friend, that's, that's a good start. That's a good start to generally know the Bible. But that's not enough. Jesus knew the Bible word perfect. He could quote the words of Scripture. So you and I must know the Bible well, and we need to have key parts of the Bible memorized so that when temptation comes our way, we can overcome that temptation with the words of Scripture. And by the way, you say, well, what are the key parts well, if you want to talk about that, I'll be happy to talk to you later. Not right now, okay? But there, there are certain things that are going to be more profitable for you in your life than others, okay? Things that will apply for certain areas of your life where maybe, for example, the genealogies aren't going to be that helpful in 
in temptation, okay? <laughs> Are you with me, class? You know, quoting, you know, Adam begat so-and-so and he begat so-and-so against Satan's probably not the most helpful portion of Scripture. There's better things you could learn. So we have the Bible, and that's the first reason we can have victory. But number two, you and I have the same Holy Spirit that Jesus did. Galatians 5, verse 16 says, Walk by the Spirit, and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. One commentator summarized it this way. Here's what he said, quote, Resist the devil in the power of the Spirit through the guidance of the Word to accomplish the will of God, end quote. My friend, you want to know how to defeat Satan, the devil, your own indwelling sin, this world? How do you defeat temptations and sin? That's how you do it. You say, well, that, that just sounds too simple. Yes, but it's harder to live it, isn't it? It's hard to walk in the Spirit. Being filled with the Spirit is, is something you're going to have to continually do. Ephesians says that's a continuous action. Allowing the Spirit to control your life. and That's some every single moment of your life you're going to have to say, okay, sin will not have victory. My indwelling sin will not have the victory. I am here to... Honor God, glorify Him, and worship, and only worship Him. So re, you, you have to resist the devil in the power of the Spirit. If you, you try to go out there on your own, it, it's like those guys, I forget which, which book of the Bible it was in. You remember those guys, one of, one of the Gospels talks about it, those guys, they went in and tried to defeat the devils, and, and they got thrown out, and some of, some of them ran out naked. The devils beat them up. They were, they were trying to do things in their own strength. You try, you try to defeat the devil in your own strength and the demons, you try to conquer your indwelling sin in your own strength, you're going to get defeated. You're going to get beat up. You're going to lose. Don't do that. Resist the devil in the power of the Spirit using God's Word. God uses His Word. It's powerful. Hebrews 4 says it's alive. It can pierce even into our souls, divide and can conquer when it needs to. Use the Word of God through the power of the Spirit to accomplish the will of God. Let's pray.